This week, we take a journey into the past to learn about the future with critically acclaimed filmmaker turned YouTuber Casey Neistat. We learn how his personal story shaped the stories that he tells, then gain insight into his creative process, work ethic, and daily routine. Welcome to the Story Podcast. There are things meant for you that are currently beyond your imagination. The only way to become a better storyteller is by telling more stories. Your greatest work may not be seen by millions of people. Keep making anyway. To be a writer, we have to sit down and we have to do the work and we don't get up until it's finished. The only hope we have are the stories we tell. Stories not bound by what is possible. We are proud to be storytellers. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. Here at Story Headquarters, we are in full-on dreaming and planning mode as we imagine our annual conference-style gathering, Story 2017. We've already released the first round of announcements of this year's speaker lineup. Our already confirmed presenters for this year come from creative companies like Pixar, Pinterest, Disney, Marvel, Cirque du Soleil, and more. And, and that doesn't even include the amazing freelance artists and storytellers that are joining them on stage. We still have some huge announcements coming over the course of the next few weeks and months. Quite frankly, it's going to be the best year yet. So be sure to visit story2017.com to learn more. In light of the season our team is in, this week we wanted to release a special episode with Casey Neistat. That includes not only the insightful talk he gave live on stage last year at Story, but the very personal and transparent Q&A that followed. Let's jump in. Here's Casey Neistat at Story 2016. I was just like standing backstage for the last five minutes being like, do I go out now? Um, okay, it's called Story, so I'm going to start with a little story about Nashville, and this sort of dovetails nicely with my talk, but, like, when I first moved to New York City, I was just like this hack, high school dropout, screw up of a kid, and I was just hustling for work and hustling for work. I met this, like, really important guy who had this TV network, and it was sort of like a cable access TV network, and he was opening up a new cable access channel in Aspen, Colorado, and he came to my brother and me, and he was like, hey, um, why don't you go out there and make us a bunch of little movies that we'll show on the cable access channel in Colorado. Make them about the, about the town. And we're like, cool, that sounds fun. And he was like, um, just do me a favor. Make sure it's respectable. <laughs> um, so we took the budget, like the whole budget, and instead of flying out to Colorado and making videos, we bought like this big 1987 Ford Econoline van, and then we put two mini bikes in the back that we ordered from China, and we thought that we'd recreate Dumb and Dumber, where they like, <laughs> where they, like drive to Aspen, um, and then we like painted, I know, we like painted on the side of the van, we just wrote like the respectability tour. <laughs> but we... Long story long, we had only a couple of days, and we looked at a map, and we're like, okay, New York City, Aspen, Colorado, what are the cities that we absolutely want to see between here and there? And the first stop was Nashville, Tennessee. So it's good to be back. Uh, story, story. How many people here work in the advertising industry in one way or another? 
Okay. I do. Like, that's sort of the only way that I, in one way or another, the only way that I make money is like, I either do branded content, I work directly with brands, I work with agencies. I've been doing this for 15 years. Even my YouTube channel, like, all the revenue from that is based on ads going in front of it. That said, I hate the advertising industry. <laughs> I hate it. Um, and one of the reasons why I hate it is because they take all the really good words. Like, who decided? that advertising people get to be called creatives. Not artists, not filmmakers or writers and musicians. They're not creatives. People who make commercials are creatives. And I said this once to like a, um, like a really important ad man. He was like, I was like, why? Why do you get to call yourself that? And he's like, we're good at marketing. I was like, oh. <laughs> Got me. Um, I bring that up because a couple years ago, the, the, like the buzzword in advertising was um, experience. Everybody had to create an experience. Let's do an experience. Let's do, and right now the buzzword in advertising, which I just hate, the buzzword is story. And I hate that. I hate it. Um, <laughs> I hate it. Um, because not everything is, is a story. And also, I think that, um, I think stories are precious and stories have to be protected. And when I think of what a story means to me, like my brain goes to very, very like, I remember my grandpa like telling me these like really moving, fantastical little stories when I was a kid. And I, I think of like movies that have moved me and I think of like Bob Dylan lyrics that have changed me. That's what I think of when I think of stories, not some fucking Dove commercial. <laughs> Um, so I, I hope there's nobody from Dove here also. There goes my chances for working for Dove. Um, so my version of Facebook and Minecraft and these things that I now mindlessly spend like 10 hours a day staring at my phone doing, my version of that was playing on the railroad tracks as a kid, um, digging underground forts, which my God, what were my parents thinking? The idea of underground and fort and children is just a recipe for disaster. But this is what I did. My hands were dirty as a kid. I was always in trouble. I was always breaking things. We thought it was hysterical right after Christmas when mom told us to get rid of the Christmas tree, to set it up on the railroad tracks, then run extension cords so it could be lit when the train smashes into it. <laughs> like, this is, this is what my childhood was. And, you know, when I was... When I was 15 years old, and 14 years old, and, and I was the one who discovered that you know, my, my mother was no longer being faithful to my father, and I had to tell my father about it, and led to the two of them getting a divorce, and things got really messed up at home, and I ran away at age 15. Like, at the time, that was like, that's a horrifying thing to tell. Like, you guys got quiet real fast. But I have such appreciation that I had that. I remember being 15, it was freezing cold, I was marching Connecticut, walking down the street with like a backpack, having no idea where I was going at nine o'clock at night on a Tuesday. When I left home, when I moved out of my parents' house for the, for the, for the last time ever. Um, these, these memories, these things are vivid. Uh, I remember like the, the, the tenor in my dad's voice when I told him at age 16 that my girlfriend was pregnant. And I remember him saying so delicately, have you decided what you're going to do? And I think like that's vivid what he meant, but 
I don't think I even understood it then. But to have had those experiences, to have had this wealth of experience to draw from is, I think, at the core of what yields the ability to tell stories. So with that, I think that in, in your own lives, in your own ambitions, however they may manifest, when you look at the idea of, of sharing stories, you know, Lena Dunham, who's a brilliant, brilliant writer, good friend of mine, she says, like, don't wait for somebody else to tell your story. Tell your story. Look inside and draw from those experiences um, because that's where truths come from. So with that, fast forwarding back to the respectability tour, you know, that project was actually like a mild success, a success in the respect that the guy, the owner of the cable network shows that hired us to make that, he loved it. And I don't know if anybody even ever saw it, but it was like pretty funny. Uh, and he loved that. And after we made it, he was like, let's do something big together. And he was thinking, make a feature film. I don't know what a feature film, I don't know how to make a feature film. Um, but we ended up making like, I said, here, just bankroll us for a year. And in a year, we'll make a whole bunch of stuff. And at the end of that year, we had like, basically we just made YouTube videos, but YouTube wasn't around then. We just made like this onslaught of little videos. And we sort of formed and patted them together like you would with like hamburger meat turned into patties and we called that a TV show. And then we went and shot that TV show and we sold that TV show to HBO for a couple million bucks. And that was like, that was such a pivot point. That was such a turning point for me in my career. And they bought that show in 2008 and it didn't air until 2010. And in those two years, I was, you know, it was a hot shot. It was a big deal now. And in those two years, I produced feature films that were wildly successful. The two films that I produced, we premiered both of them at the Cannes Film Festival in France. The second of which we also premiered at Sundance, which like, they never, that never happens. Um, sold them to IFC, got distribution. They were in movie theaters. I won awards for them. Um, and in 2010, which is the height, the peak, the peak, the apex, the crescendo of my career in traditional media, as I won an Independent Spirit Award on a stage that like Natalie Portman was on, it was like on TV, my parents saw it. It was the same time my TV show was literally premiering every Friday night on HBO. It was like the height of success. And I was absolutely miserable. Miserable. Um, I think I can pinpoint the moment which was like flying home from LA with this huge trophy, this big award in my hand, which was like definitely a threat to national security. They should have never have let me flown with this. Um, had these big wings, it was brass. And TSA saw it and the guy was like, I saw you on TV, man. Come on, get through, get through. I was like, that's not how it works. <laughs> but I'm on the plane and I've got my headphones on and I was like listening to Radiohead or one of those songs that, you know, like when you're alone, you get the headphones on, you're like looking at it, you get all nostalgic and weird, start crying, what the fuck's wrong with me? Start freaking out. <laughs> I was having one of those moments and I realized that I worked so hard with my head down with my brother just making stuff for the pure joy of it for, you know, six, seven years. And because of that energy and like that passion for sharing stories and sharing perspectives and sharing ideas, it led us all the way to all this wild success. And the first thing I did when I got that success is I stopped doing the thing that I loved. Instead, I like produced movies because like I got to be at parties with like famous celebrities that were like kissing my ass because I just produced a fancy movie and they wanted to be in the next movie and it made me feel important. But I realized like that's where the source of my unhappiness came from is because I stepped away from it. And that was the moment that I decided to focus on YouTube. Um, and I, like a lot of people on, on YouTube, you know, like I started my channel with zero, with nothing. 
And I remember I had like six videos that I put my life into and I had like no views. My kid at the time who was 12, his friends in like middle school had bigger YouTube channels than me. And I was literally had a show that was premiering every Friday night on HBO. And I was like, this is so unfair. And then I was like, actually this is completely fair. And that sucks that like my success elsewhere doesn't yield me success here. And, and then I launched this movie. And I, I wanna show you this movie because um, it's, it's this movie in particular that I think story is everything. This movie, this movie catapulted my career online. This movie got me um, a job with the New York Times. This movie changed policy. This movie, um, this movie had political ramifications. This movie had me on the news globally, literally BBC Global broadcasted everywhere. Al Jazeera picked it up. This movie cost like $30 to make. Um, there was nothing to this movie. Uh, but the story, the story was powerful enough to accomplish all of that. Um, all right, this is two and a half minutes long. So if you get super bored, just forever go take a leak. I'll come grab you when it's over. I'm getting a ticket for riding my bike not in the bike lane. Not guilty, not guilty. Everything you need. You're a bicyclist, so it's, it's anywhere um, from $10 uh, up to 130 depending on your record. But it's a bicycle summit. It's a bicycle summit, just for show and elsewhere, the police continue to crack down on biking infractions. As the number of bikers explodes throughout the city, ticketing is on the rise. Casey in Manhattan, you got a ticket this month? Uh, yeah, I got a, a ticket about three weeks ago for riding my bike not in the bike lane. Not in the bike lane. Alex is holding up a sign that says, <laughs> you could have just said it. Oh, okay. His sign says, not illegal. Yeah. I wish I had known that before I paid the $50 ticket. Well, so... Th
so when I made that, there was like a lot going on in New York City around how bikers were getting in trouble with cops and things like that. And there were hundreds of videos. I think it was Gawker wrote the article specifically about why did this video force the mayor to address it in a press conference when specifically asked about this? Why was this video all over the news? Why was this video the sort of like this conversation piece that everybody's hanging their hat on. Why is it that this video has done, I think, 20 million, 19 million views, something like that? Because when you search bike tickets New York City, you get page after page of like people yelling at the cops, getting yelled at by the cops. Like this exact story by hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people captured even better than the way I captured it. <clears throat> and to me, it comes down to one very obvious thing, which is that like, in that like really poorly made, I don't know if you can notice all the titles were all screwed up because I only knew how to use iMovie at the time. If any of you ever used iMovie, you have no control of the titles and you're like, well, I guess that's fine. Like all <laughs> fucked up. Um, but it, it was the story. It was, this was an experience that it, a lot of people had been dealing with. If you've ever been frustrated in your life with like your cable companies or a ticket or a parking ticket, whatever it might be, you feel that frustration. And all I tried to do with that video is sort of take that frustration and sublimate it into something that was like shareable to share and express my frustration with others. Um, and that video was the, was the inflection point for my career on YouTube. Um, that video is what took my channel from nothing to something and gave me this tremendous audience. And, and I mentioned the New York Times before, but they called me and they're like, hey, we love that video. Um, will you make videos like that for us? And I was like, I think you've got the wrong number. Um, and a, a long relationship was built in the New York Times where my only mandate was they would give me topics that are really uninteresting, like ticketing cyclists in New York City, and they would say, here, make a piece of video that, that shares this in an interesting and compelling way. And that's exactly what I did with them for years. Um, but it was the story. At the core of all of this was the story. And my own career in advertising, which is where I started this talk, um, sort of looked like I would make fun videos. I'd make videos that I loved making, whether they were like the respectability tour, the HBO show, feature films, or YouTube videos like this. Brands would see them, they'd say, hey, we'd love that guy. So then their agency would get in touch with me, the agency would go to a production company, the production company would reach out to me, and then I'd say yes, they'd go back to the production, they'd go back to the agency, they'd go back to the client, and they'd say treatment, and they'd go back, and they'd go back. And then eventually I'd show up on set, and if any of you, have you ever been to a commercial shoot before, you'd know it's like there's literally a tent city where everybody sits and there's a thing set up to my camera so they can see what I'm shooting and then there's a storyboard and a script and there are literally hand-drawn pictures of exactly what the shot should look like, exactly what the kids should say. And I'm like doing this, I'm like, why would they hire me for this? Like, why not just get a robot? Because everything is defined. There was no creative latitude, no opportunity for me to sort of infuse a story. Um, and I expressed this frustration um, but it fell sort of, it fell on deaf ears and because the paychecks are ridiculous, <laughs> advertising so stupid. Um, I kept doing it. I was like, great, yeah, look, I'll take your money. Um, but the product wasn't good. The videos weren't good. And then as I was finding traction with videos like that, um, I sort of went to my commercial agent at the time and I was like, these brands that want to work with me because of these videos, get them to let me do these videos but for them. And I remember the owner of the company then in 2010, she's like, that's not how it works. Um, I immediately stopped working with them. Uh, I think I was their biggest earner on the East Coast and I immediately ended the relationship. 
And it was tough, it was tough going, but eventually I connected with Nike and they're like, yeah, do your thing, man. And we made three videos, two were great and successful. And then the third one, I was like, I'm really gonna do my thing. And I like basically stole the entire budget. And instead of making a commercial for them, I just lived out one of my fantasies, which is to show up at an airport and buy whatever the next plane ticket out was and just kept doing that until the entire budget had evaporated. Um, <laughs> And that led me and my, my buddy all around the world in like weird, scary places like in Kenya right after a huge terrorist attack and like trapped in the Middle East and like weird Southeast Asia, like it just got gnarly. Um, but we made a video that shared that story. Video, by the way, that had no Nike products and not even a swoosh in it. Nike saw it and they're like, is this an advertisement for Patagonia? Because I see your Patagonia coat, Casey. <laughs> um, and I was like, I'm sorry. But, you know, that video was, I think for, for, until the last World Cup, that was the most watched video that Nike had ever made. Um, and to this day is, is, is sort of uh, something that I still get hired, make us a video like that. Because the story was so real, it was my story. It was just a story that I truly wanted to share, a story that I wanted to tell. And there happened to be real alignment with the story that I wanted to share that was my story and the story that the brand was trying to communicate. Um, so with that, I'm gonna end this talk, so we have time for Q&A, with not the Nike movie, which is, um, which is what I was going to show you. Instead, I wanna show you a successor to the Nike movie. Um, so I don't take full credit for it, but maybe I'll take all the credit for it. But like this movement and advertisement for like inspirational advertising, which is like. <sighs> um, after the Nike piece, I know. After the Nike piece, you know, like literally Mark Parker, the CEO of Nike called me. And he's like, man, I saw your video for us. I got to get out of the office more. Um, but that's all anybody wanted. They wanted me to make that to the point where brands literally called me. And they're like, hey, we'll just give you all this money. Do whatever you want. Make it cool, bro. <laughs> um, it got like really uninteresting really fast because I'd be like, okay. And they're like, hey, what are you going to do? Like, it's not, like, you, did you, that's not how this transaction um, It got old fast to the point where like I no longer pursue gigs like that. Like it doesn't, but one opportunity came up, and it was one of those. They're like, here's a check, and it was a big check. It was 25,000 bucks, and like, do whatever you want. And then I was like, what do you mean, whatever I want? And they're like, we want something inspirational. And I was like, oh, fuck that, you're kidding me. <laughs> um, but then I had an idea, and I called them back, and I took the money. And I'm gonna show you the video that I made now, because this video has nothing to do with anything but story. This video was purely and only about story. And if I didn't put it in text on the screen, you might not know why this video is being made at all, because this video is just about that story. Um, so I'm gonna play this now, and then I think we're gonna do a little bit of a Q&A. At this point in Casey's talk, he played the video that you heard him describing. Honestly, just listening to the audio of that video doesn't do it justice. You just have to see it. You can watch it on Casey's channel or by watching the video of Casey's talk on our site at storygatherings.com. 
I hope you'll check it out. Like all of Casey's work, it's a great video. But what you won't see online yet is what you're about to hear. Following Casey's talk, our audience had the opportunity to ask him some great questions, which they submitted via Twitter. Let's listen in. There's a, a ton of questions that have been flowing in on Twitter. Uh, so we're going to put some of those up on the screen and uh, grab some stools. And Casey's going to video blog. Hey, while he's doing that, the, the, the vlog has been really interesting. So if any of you aren't aware of Casey's channel, at the time, we first reached out to Casey and invited him to come give a talk at Story. Uh, we were all excited and pumped and hyping the fact that he had two and a half million YouTube subscribers. And as of this morning, you have five? Yeah, five, five million YouTube subscribers. Uh, so yeah, a little congrats are in order for that, I think. Thank you. Uh, and we were talking about that's, that's a pretty small handful of people, right? That's not many once you get to five million people. That's a... Yeah, that's a, it's, a, it's a big threshold to cross. I'm pretty, yeah. pretty excited yeah. about it. Congrats, man. All right, first, first question tweeted in from Charles. Do you have or have you ever had a mentor? You know, it's interesting. Um, I have always been super, super skeptical of the word mentor, like someone that you theoretically would sort of follow and believe in and look to. And I always thought it was my own like insanely oversized ego that had precluded me from really embracing a mentor in life. Um, until I went to MIT, I was invited to MIT uh, two years ago. It was a, a fellowship out of the Media Lab that was a joint program between the uh, Rockefeller Foundation and the Sundance Institute. And um, the only MIT fellow, who's also a high school dropout, by the way. Um, and I met my MIT professor. Uh, it was my MIT professor there that really, like, um, led the whole program, I learned so much from him. And he in particular is someone who I would absolutely identify as a mentor for, for more reasons than I could uh, possibly count. But there, there's one in particular that really showed me like what it meant to sort of really be selfless and believe in another person. And that was when I was, I was raising money for, uh, to start a company. And I was sort of telling him about this company that I wanted to build. And I said, how do I do it? What do I do? And he's like, well, the first thing you need to do is raise some money. And I said, how do you do that? How do I do that? And he walked me through the steps. And he's like, do you have people you can ask? And I was like, yeah, I think so. And he was like, okay, well, I would like to be the first person to invest in your new, your new company, Casey. I would like to invest $100,000, um, which is an ungodly amount of money, especially for someone who's a... a um, you know, he's not an extraordinarily wealthy man. But in that moment, I learned what it really meant to believe in another person by the way that he believed in me. And that's when I really understood the definition of, of a mentorship. And so, yeah, so I would accept Cam Vars' name and I would certainly call him uh, a, a mentor. Wow. Uh, it's called story. I can't just say his name. I have to give the whole story. No, I understand. Right I understand. <laughs> I, if this, no, if, if this event were if you, called like names, if you would have said I would the name. I would have had to be like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Uh, well, now that now that we did something really meaningful, uh, our next question is even more meaningful. Would you like a green, fresh pressed green drink that I picked up from Daily Juice for? for uh, you, Andrew, Andrew one, I think that's really sweet, and two, clearly you didn't get the memo 
that backstage they have breakfast burritos and they're like in one of those things and I had like seven of them. So I'll take it from you and be like, yeah, I'll stay healthy. I'm just going to go in the back and throw it out. <laughs> oh man, from Joshua. I'd love to know if you've learned anything about, oh, this is a good question. Have you learned anything about yourself and about film by doing your daily vlogs? Yeah, I learned how lazy I always was before I started um, daily vlogging. You know, the thing about making a video every single day is it forces, especially when your life is the, the core narrative of that, of that daily show, you're forced to examine your life in a way that is more um, specific than I could imagine anything else being. Uh, and it's really sort of motivated me to sort of to live and appreciate and value every single second of every day. And I don't mean that in sort of the uh, hyperbolic, platitudinal, like, embrace every second. What I mean is it's like, if at four o'clock I'm like, okay, today's episode, what have I shot? And I'm like, I haven't done anything today. Phone calls and meetings has been my whole day. I'm like, that is no way to live. And I, I force myself to get out and actually do something. Um, so yeah, it's been extremely meaningful to me in that capacity because when you examine your life, your own life under a microscope, every day, seven days a week, you realize just how much time you waste and how much time you, do, you spend doing things you, you, you shouldn't be doing because they really don't contribute to your happiness or your success. So um, if, it were a more, if, it were, if it weren't such an unsexy definition, I would say like the name of my daily show should be called like the Casey Neistat Life Audit but I don't think that would get me like 5 million subscribers because that just sounds awful. <laughs> I'm curious too, just, you know, I, and I've listened to a couple of interviews with you on different podcasts and things, your sleep schedule during that season of producing a YouTube video every single day uh, was chaotic. There are nights that, can you kind of give us the quick rundown? I mean, if by that season you mean the last 600 days in a row, yes. including today, yes. where like when I unlocked my screen, like my vid today's video had uploaded and I was like trying to talk to you guys and click okay at the same time. Um, <laughs> I'm Whoa, in the thick of up. it. You were trying to upload your video during your talk? I, I did. <laughs> um, I, can show you the other, I can show you the other screen. It's and women now. say men can't multitask. Um, <laughs> what did you ask me? Oh, <laughs> you know, this, the sleep schedule. It, you know, it's, it's, it's hard. I work, I work 20 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And, um, and that's not a, like, that's not an exaggeration, right? Throwing no, little... no, no, no. And I think that like, you know, there's a lot of living in there and there's no boundary between what is life and what is work for me. And I think the difference between me saying that as a, a daily YouTuber versus maybe a writer or somebody else saying that is like, I actually have a quantification of that. Like it has a yield every single day. Like it's not BS that I say I work 20 hours a day. Like it's literally happening. Even though a lot of that is, is it's a very nebulously defined. Sure. But um, no, it's, you know, I wake up every day, seven days a week, uh, including this morning at four o'clock. Um, and four to seven are my favorite hours of the day. I absolutely love it because no phone calls, no emails, no texts, there's no noise, baby's asleep, wife's asleep. Like it's my time. I live in this great apartment where I can see the whole city. It's like my favorite time. And I get a lot of work done then. Um, baby's up at seven, gotta get her ready. Baby go downstairs at 7.45, Candace pulls up in the car, put her in the, put her in the car, I drive her to school, like the day begins and it doesn't stop usually um, no matter what my day looks like, I'm home every day at six o'clock, um, without exception. 
because um, that time in the morning before she goes to school and then six o'clock until she goes to bed at 7.30 or eight, like that's, that's family time and like that there's, it doesn't matter what's happening, like I'm there for that time, um, including that's my excuse for chartering helicopters to fly home from the airport. I'm like, honey. <laughs> um, <laughs> gotta see the baby. And... Uh, Baby goes down at 7.30 or 8, Candace goes down. I put Candace down to bed, um, <laughs> which is like tucking her in, and like putting the remote in her hand, like pointing it at the TV and patting her on the head at like, you know, 9.30-ish. And then I sit down and I work until I can like feel my productivity slow to almost a grinding halt. And then I go to bed at like 11.30, 12, wake up at 4 every single day. Um, and I love it. Like, I love it. We took a break this summer. It was the first break I've taken in those 600 days. And it was a trip with my wife. And it was like four days into it. And she's like, please start making videos again. You're making me crazy. Because <laughs> um, I have no idea what to do with my time or energy if I'm not completely focused on something. Um, That's awesome. Next question. Uh, what would you hope Francine and Owen would see about their dad while watching the vlogs a year later? Oh, oh that's God. That's a great question. Is it? <laughs> well done, Maggie. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know. Uh, I mean, I do think it's a really interesting portrait. Um, hmm. One thing that's sort of a, an unintentional side effect of making these uh, every day is that I never get to watch them. When I click export, it's the last time that I'll see, ever see any of, my, uh, any of the episodes. I never go back and watch any of them. Even the snowboarding video? I mean, not really. So when I do, when those happen, I was like, wow, I remember that. And it's so yeah. vivid. I mean, you imagine like reading a journal, uh, an excerpt from your journal, or like finding a letter you wrote five years ago, and you're like, I remember that. Well, imagine having like a 10-minute video that is literally the encapsulation of that entire day. So I don't know what, what they'll, they'll take from it, but I do think it's a really interesting, um, interesting way to sort of capture uh, and preserve your own life. Yeah. I don't know if that's good or bad. I'm not prepared to sort of cast judgment on that yet. Yeah. But what editing program do you use? Come on. What in the world do you do with all the footage? Boring question. <laughs> um, I use Final Cut Pro, not because it's the best, but because I don't want to take the time to learn another one can't afford that time. And I store all of my footage. You know, I buy these 20 or 40 uh, terabyte drives, um, and I fill one up every five weeks. Is there like a giant closet of them somewhere? No, but it gets expensive fast. Um, and do you ever wipe them? Or you, you're never, archiving never. stuff forever? Every raw footage, every image, every, every shot, everything, it's all meticulously cataloged. I can, you could name a day. And for, like each, March. for each vlog that is 10 minutes long, how many hours of video footage do you have? Not a lot. I'm extremely precise. I mean, that camera is a sniper rifle, not a machine gun. Um, if I don't think I'm going to use the shot, I never hit record. It's just a matter of efficiency. But the cataloging of it is something I'm extraordinarily meticulous about. Like you could name a date, like April 9th, 2008, and I could pull that up in three seconds. Um, uh, otherwise, what's the point? Yeah. Wow. Does this feel like a job for you? What does this mean? Like this talking to you does guys? Does this feel like or... a job to you? No, not, probably not this talk. I think this, uh, what you're doing right now with your life, does it feel like 100% fun? No, does I mean, to, feel like to me, uh, I, I like, 
the last time I described something as having a job is, I associate having a job as having a boss, being, having to answer to someone, um, which believe it or not, I was really terrible at. I was probably the world's worst employee ever. Um, like when I was a dishwasher at age 17, all I wanted to do was like redo the entire system because the restaurant didn't make any sense. It, like why would they have busters, waitresses, dishwashers, and prep cooks when like I had a whole system <laughs> and they didn't listen to me and guess who's out of business right now, okay? <laughs> um, so no, like this doesn't feel like a job. I mean like when I was on that vacation with my wife, I was miserable. There's nothing I like less than relaxing. I hate it. I absolutely hate it. So you loved um, being with your wife. It was just the relaxing part. Yeah. I, I, In case she watches this video later, you weren't miserable because you... No, but she knows that. Like, she, she's terrified if I'm not busy. I just hate, I hate downtime. It makes me it just, I get so angry so fast. Um, <laughs> actually, like, day two of that trip with her, I just, we picked this, like, fight of all fights because I was just bored. I didn't have anything to do. <laughs> so we just fought for like two days. At least it kept, us, kept me busy. <laughs> um, what are some practical ways to practice becoming a better storyteller? Well, I think that that's a great question, Joni, Johnny. The, the only way to become a better storyteller is by telling more stories. Um, a friend of mine, Sarah, she's doing the uh, Snapchat for, for this and event. Instagram stories. And Instagram stories. We were backstage and we were just talking about public speaking and I was like take every opportunity you can to speak in front of an audience. Like for years, I used to go to high schools and speak to 15 kids because every time you do it, you get a little bit better at it. You understand a little bit more. And I think the beauty of storytelling doesn't cost anything. It's just time and effort. And if you're not willing to put in the time or effort, then you shouldn't be trying to tell stories in the first place. Go get a job washing dishes. But if you truly want to be a storyteller, then tell stories. Like pencils and paper are really, really cheap. Um, you know, find an audience, but that's the only way yeah. to get good at it. Awesome, awesome. Will you guys thank Casey for being us with us this year? So, yeah. Man, thanks so much. Thanks, guys. Yeah. If you've enjoyed this talk from Casey at last year's conference, I hope you're beginning to imagine how inspired you'll leave this year's conference feeling. Story is like two days of creative fuel for storytellers of all kinds. It's part instruction, part inspiration. It's filled with innovative talks and unforgettable performances that will inspire you to do your best, most creative work. Don't miss it. The cost of registration goes up by $100 on May 31st, which is less than two weeks away. So don't wait to register. Head to story2017.com. Thanks so much for listening to this week's show. Next week on The Story Podcast, Sammy Harvey and I sit down with Ian Morgan Cron to talk Enneagram and a whole lot more. I am Harris III, and I look forward to talking to you next week. In the meantime, keep telling stories. They matter. This episode was produced by Harris III. It was mixed by Chad Michael Snavely and music was written by Aaron Farmer. The Story Podcast is a production of Astoria Collective. Thank you for listening.